Thank you so much. I love that song. Do you know what psalm that comes from? Not you, Quinn. I know you know. <laughs> psalm 136. That's the passage of Psalm 136. Uh, there's a prize for you, Debbie, at the Welcome Center. I heard you uh, got it right. Hope you're paying attention. We're going to sing that in a couple of weeks congregationally. So that was a way of hearing it again. Uh, if, you're, if you're visiting, we are taking this year to work through the book of Acts. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 31. So Acts 4, 23 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the Purax, and uh, our passage is found on page 912. And while we're turning there, and before we read God's Word, let me, let me lead in with a story. When I was a child... Uh, my parents developed creative ways of disciplining me. Uh, they, they were masterminds, really, at bringing about good from my evil. Uh, w- one example, when I was 13, they, they had me read and write a report on the book Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, it's a book about her late husband, Jim, who, along with four other men, died in Ecuador while, while trying to reach indigenous Indians. The funny thing is, I can't remember what I did, but I can certainly remember what I read. And if you don't know about Jim Elliott, here's just a little snippet. From the time that he was in high school, he had devoted his life uh, to the service of God, devoted his life to ministry and to mission. And so in preparation for ministry, he attended uh, Wheaton College, and he majored in Greek. And four years after graduation, he married Elizabeth. They had a daughter named Valerie, and, and he spent those six years after college in Ecuador, trying to reach unreached peoples, trying to reach indigenous tribes, eventually, ultimately, trying to reach the Hurani Indians. The Hurani were a notoriously violent tribe. They were known for, um, for their violence against other tribes and, and really their isolationism. And, and so Jim and the other four missionaries first began by flying over their area and dropping off gifts and supplies to indicate that they came in peace. Eventually, they made personal contact. When they finally did, the Harani slaughtered them, mutilated their bodies, and sent their bodies floating down the river. Was God asleep at the switch on January the 8th, 1956, when Jim Elliott, at the young age of 28, along with those other four men who were with him, was, was God asleep when they were killed? Was he checked out? Was he absent? Was he taking a break from his duties? Of course, the answer is no. God never slumbers. He never sleeps. He is sovereign over all, and he is always exercising his sovereign rule and reign over the bad and the good. And a strange strange thing happens when, when you begin to wrestle with God's sovereignty. And there are little moments in life that force you to do that. Uh, moments that, that are unexpected, moments that we all know are coming, the, the death of a loved one, the, uh, the diagnosis that you never hoped you would get. Uh, something comes along and we're forced to wrestle with God's sovereignty and it can either confuse us and make us callous or comfort us and give us confidence. Wrestling with God's sovereignty and ultimately embracing God's sovereignty should never lead us to be callous. It should never make us cavalier. Several years ago, uh, I, I called a man 
whose church building was destroyed. It was destroyed on a Saturday night. I called him on a Sunday morning, and I, I offered my prayers. I offered my sympathy. I offered my support, and I, I said to him, I'm so sorry this happened. I, I can't imagine the, the stress this creates, the burden this creates. I, I'll do anything I can to help. And I was sort of taken aback because he replied in a fairly callous tone, well, God's sovereign, ain't he? Yes. Yes, God is sovereign. And that should comfort us. It shouldn't make us callous. It should make us confident, not cavalier. Friends, we can welcome God's sovereign rule. And we can rest in his sovereign reign. And at the same time, wrestle with that. Wrestle with that. Wrestle with it by faith because, because we can't fully know his will and his ways, but we can know uh, what he has revealed to us. We can keep following him by faith. And that's what we're going to see this morning in our passage. And again, it's Acts 4, 23 through 31. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and your word works. And so my prayer uh, this morning, as it is almost every Sunday morning, uh, is that the Spirit would go before the Holy Spirit, before the reading and preaching of the Word, and do the work that you intend, that you've designed. To open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us soft and receptive hearts, and ultimately, maybe for some folks here this morning, give them a new heart. To receive your Word to us, the good news gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. This is God's Holy Word. When they, this is Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May God write his word upon our hearts. Let's do this, take just a moment to, to get some context, particularly if you're visiting, uh, if you've been out over the last couple of weeks, just to, to, uh, to reset, to reboot, to figure out where we are. Peter and John and many of the other disciples, uh, they were already facing opposition and obstacles. The church, the church was a newborn. The church was, was just learning to crawl and find her way. She had barely been constituted on the day of Pentecost. She was a newborn, and already the Jewish religious leaders were, were applying pressure. 
They were creating obstacles and opposition. So just before this, and this is what we considered last week a bit, just before this, Peter and John were arrested. And they were arrested for simply preaching and ministering to folks. They, they weren't hurting anyone. In fact, Jesus working through them was helping and healing folks. But the persecution continued. The opposition uh, increased. And what we're going to see is that the apostles are arrested again in the next chapter. Stephen is stoned two chapters later. Paul begins breathing murderous threats against the church one chapter after that. And, and, and one of the sub-themes of Acts is that the opposition and obstacles continue throughout this book. If you were here at the very beginning, I said that this is written um, around the year 60 uh, A.D., early, early 60s. For the next 30 years or so, opposition and obstacles continue throughout the time in the book of Acts and really for the next 30 years. Many times when we face opposition and obstacles or, or sometimes when tragedy strikes, do we find ourselves making excuses for God? I know I do that sometimes. Someone comes to me and, and um, they're confronted with a tragedy or, um, or a challenge. I find myself trying to make excuses for God. Maybe sometimes we begin to doubt him. We begin to doubt that he, he is actually in control. Because if he were in control, how, how could he possibly allow these things to happen? And one of the points that is made in this passage, and sort of an overarching point, is that God is always in complete control. That he is exercising his sovereign rule and his reign. And the way, the way that Luke upholds this, the way that he proves this is that God was in complete control and exercising his sovereignty when the most horrible atrocity ever was committed, the death of his son, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. N notice again, for truly in this, this is verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So Herod, we know what he did. Pontius Pilate, washing his hands. The, the Gentiles, the Romans, rising up. The people of Israel, betraying their Lord. What did they do? They did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. One of the points that's being made is if God was in control and exercising his sovereign rule and reign when the most horrible atrocity ever was committed, then everything that happens happens within God's sovereign control. If God did not slumber or sleep, but instead planned for the very death of his son, then nothing, nothing happens outside of his sovereign control. You know, it's not just opposition and obstacles and tragedy that cause us to wrestle with God's sovereignty. Sometimes it, it's as simple as God's answer of no when we wanted a Yes. So, so opposition, obstacles, persecution, trials, tragedy, those things certainly get our attention. They cause us to wrestle, uh, to really uh, be reflective on God's sovereignty, but it's not just that. Sometimes it's as simple as God saying, no, no, I'm not going to let you go that way. Instead, you're going to go this way. So 13 years ago, uh, I interviewed uh, to be the pastor of a church right outside of Los Angeles, actually in Malibu. It was a beautiful place. Uh, I really, I really wanted to go there. 
And, and strangely enough, they wanted, they wanted me to be their pastor, so it was a match made in heaven. I wanted to go there. They wanted me to be their pastor. But on the flight back and in the days after, Kimbo and I clearly discerning, uh, discerned the Lord saying, no, that's not where you need to go. Instead, we went to Texas and, um, and had four years of really hard ministry prior to coming here. Four years of hard ministry, four years of, of challenging uh, ministry. And, and many times during those four years, uh, I would think to myself, God, why did you say no? It was Malibu. <laughs> you could have made a way. Why did you take me from Egypt to die here in the wilderness? I never thought that God was, was not in control. You see, I knew he was in control. I knew he had clearly said no. I knew that he had directed us away from that church in California, and I was mad. I was mad. I didn't doubt that he was in control and clearly had steered us in a direction, but I, I was mad that he was in control and had done so. And so sometimes uh, opposition, obstacles, persecution, trials, and tragedy cause us to wrestle with God's sovereign reign and rule, and, and sometimes it's, it's simply God saying no when we really want him to say yes. Maybe you've had a situation like that, a no when you wanted a yes, a hardship or a heartache brought about by a tragedy, and really what I want you to understand is that when we are faced with anything beyond our control, anything, it might be something good, it might be something ill, but anything beyond our control, we, we instinctively try to control it. When we're faced with anything beyond our control, we have a tendency to try to control it or strategize ways around it. And so what I want to share this morning, and I have three thoughts, is not a strategy around God's sovereignty, but a strategy for dealing with God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, so how are we going to deal with it? So here's the first part of the strategy. Know the end at the beginning. First part of the strategy, God is sovereign, so how are you going to deal with it? Know the end at the beginning. Uh, friends, I'm not saying that we can know or even have to know how everything is going to work out in the particulars. What I'm saying is that we must know the end result of God's master plan, and we can know it. So, so what did the disciples know? From verses 24... Through, through 28, it's made clear they knew a few things. They were confident in a few things. God is sovereign. He made all things and controls all things. And that the obstacles that they were facing, that the obstacles they were facing in that moment were predicted by David and predestined by God just as Jesus' suffering was. And we too must know that God is in control of all things. And that if he predestined the death of his own son for our greatest good, then everything that happens is for nothing less than our good. Let me say that again, because that's what you need to cling to and hold to. If, if our God predestined the death of his own son for our greatest good, then nothing or, or everything that happens is for nothing less than our good. And friends, I want you to understand that you are not a pawn in God's life game of chess. Embracing God's sovereignty does not make you a pawn in God's life game of chess. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are his child, his beloved 
son or daughter. So this morning, if your faith is in Jesus, even, even a simple faith as Robert was, was uh, sharing this morning, even, even a very elementary understanding of faith, but if your faith is in Jesus, then you're his child. And, and he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Do you know that? Do you believe it? Do you know it up here as well as in here? In Romans 8, my favorite chapter in the Bible, uh, Paul begins to extol the wonders of God's love. And then he writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's got a strategy for dealing with God's sovereignty as well. And in Paul's strategy, we have to believe in the love of God in order to make sense of the sovereignty of God. Here's, here's what Paul rests in. In order to make sense of the sovereignty of God, we have to believe and rest in the love of God. And so just before what I've read in Romans 8, what is going to separate us from God's love? Tribulation, famine, persecution, nakedness, distress, a sword, trials? No, in all this, we're more than conquerors. And just before that, he writes this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't do this often, but I'm going to quibble with the ESV's rendering there. Um, I believe it should read this. And we know that for those who love God, he causes, he's the active agent. He causes all things to work together for good. If you love God and God's love is in you, he is causing all things, the good and the bad, all things, to work together for good so that nothing can separate you from his love. God's always at work. So, so what's the end result? When I say know the end at the beginning, the end result is our good. The end result is God causing all things, even the bad things, to work together for our good because he loved us. And I am confident the disciples knew this. As the, as the persecution and the opposition were increasing and ramping up, they knew God is sovereign. He controls all things. What we are facing now was predicted by our forefathers and put in place by God. I know that can be a hard word to hear when you're slogging through the muck. Listen, I, I know when, when I say that you can know the end at the beginning, that you can know that God is working all things together for your good, but right now when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't seem very good, it doesn't feel very good. I know that can be a jagged pill to swallow. But we have to believe and know the end at the beginning. To be confident in God's love, to have this strategy for dealing with sovereignty. Here's the second part of the strategy. Rest and find relief in God's loving plan. Rest and find relief in God's loving plan. Now, now I chose those words carefully. I chose the words rest and relief carefully because I don't want you to hear the word resignation. Resignation conveys the idea of discouragement and defeat, doesn't it? 
When we say, well, I'm just resigned to the fact of this, it conveys internally and externally that we're discouraged or defeated. And so I don't, I don't want you to hear the word resignation. I want you to hear the word rest and relief. And our strategy is not to resign ourselves to God's sovereign control, but to rest in his sovereign control, to find relief. It was, I think it's amazing that in our passage, you don't get even a whiff of discouragement. Not even a whiff of discouragement. Immediately upon hearing Peter and John's report, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together to God in prayer. Prayer is this joyful activity, but it's an activity of rest. And I want to explain that. Prayer is an activity of rest. If God is not sovereign, then prayer makes no sense. If God is not sovereign, prayer is meaningless. If God cannot work in the midst of chaos, then why would we ever bring our needs before him? If things are simply going to happen as they're going to happen, natural law is just going to work itself out. If God can't intervene and control and exercise his control in, in, in the midst of what often feels like chaos, then why pray? The very act of prayer is an acknowledgement that he is in control and we are not. Do you recognize that? When you pray, you're acknowledging by the very act that there is someone in control and it's not you. You know, many times, if, if you're like me, uh, I, I turn to prayer as a last resort. I turn to prayer after I've tried to solve a problem for myself. I'm sure I'm alone in that. But resting in God, putting our hope and confidence in Him, and using prayer as a means to do so, this is where we find uh, relief. So I don't know if I've told you before, I know I've told you part of this, but uh, my parents, they were married in 1973. And they knew from the very beginning that they couldn't have children. So I, I was asking my mom about this this past weekend. Uh, when she was 10 years old, she was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. Um, I had to ask her, type 1, type 2, it always confused me. But it's, it's the kind where she has to wear a pump now and she uh, takes shots or she took shots uh, regularly when I was growing up. And, and, and so it was that form of diabetes. And she was 10 years old when she was diagnosed. And her doctors told her um, as she was um, a young lady, uh, you know, preparing or getting close to being married, that uh, if she were to have children, that it would endanger her life and, and the life of a child. And so right after she was married, just uh, the year after, she had her tubes tied. She had a tubal ligation so that she could not have children. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're a young girl when you're out of college and, and you realize you can't have kids? Well, you pray. You pray. You rest in God's plan and you pray. And so they were, they were married in 1973, and I was born in 1976, August of 1976. And I was adopted three months later in, uh, in December of 1976. And my parents, uh, I'm thankful for this, they never shied away from telling me about my adoption. From my earliest days, I, I, I recall them telling me uh, my story. 
And, and the only things that I, I knew, the only things they knew, were, were that I was born here in Tulsa at St. Francis. Um, so it's kind of neat to come back to the place of your birth. I was born at St. Francis, and, and I knew this, that my biological parents were young. They were uh, teenagers. And for as long as I can remember, my parents taught me about God's control, that he's in control, that my biological mother's pregnancy, my mom's diabetes, and, and my adoption, all part of God's plan. Well, Funny enough, um, God's plan didn't end in December 1976, so unbeknownst to me, all these years, the, uh, the wonderful lady who brought me into this world, uh, she had been praying for me for 42 years, hoping one day we'd meet. So funny enough, a little funny enough, uh, a little over a year ago, I took a DNA test. Um, by the way, if you're interested in taking one of those, they run a special on Black Friday, and... Um, <laughs> So that's why, that's why I purchased it, because it was on sale. I took a DNA test, and I spit in a little tube, sent it off, and I really didn't think much about it. Um, I, I looked at the results when they came back in, but I hadn't opened that website in a year. So on March 5th, on March 5th, I got a, I got a message from a lady named Kathy, and she said she had also taken that DNA test, and our DNA matched. And so Kathy lives in Tulsa, and Two weeks ago, I, I met my biological mother for the first time. And we had breakfast. And then that night, uh, she came over and visited Kimbo and the kids. Now, how crazy is this? Uh, one of Kathy's best friends is my next-door neighbor. <laughs> and, and, and she's actually been to the house next door to mine many times. Um, and without knowing it, we actually met last fall at a little restaurant near my house. H how's all that for God's sovereign design? Now, I'll tell you that because, because of this. So I, I've, I've really gone through a, um, a whirlwind of emotions over the last three weeks. It's been life-changing, but I haven't had any control over it. Not one bit. I've had no control over it. But God's been in control the whole time. And that's what I want you to understand. God was in control in August 1976 when I was born to a young woman uh, who made a decision for life. God was in control in December 1976 when I was adopted by Steve and Debbie Fair. God has been in control over the last 40-something years. As, as Kathy prayed for me, my parents raised me, and then I became a parent of my own. God's been in control over the last three weeks as Kathy and I have gotten to know one another. Have breakfast. We, uh, we got together last Thursday. The only thing that's been in my control is the ability to rest. Just rest. Rest in God's sovereign design, rest in his plan, and know that he loves me, that he loves me, and this is his plan being worked out. All of this has been in his control. I am confident of this, uh, that he orchestrated this. He orchestrated this because of his love for me, his love for Kathy, his love for my parents. And, and so I want you to remember this, hang on to this. The next time that you face something that feels out of your control, right? the next time you face something that feels out of your control, it might be an obstacle, it might be opposition, it might be tragedy, it might be a profound life-changing blessing. I want to challenge you just to pause. Not try to control it, not try to get a handle on it, not try to work around it, 
but just to pause, to, to reflect on God's greatness, to reflect on his goodness, to remember that if, if you're a believer, he loves you and he is working everything out in the details and then just rest. Rest. Rest in prayer. Rest is not giving up. It's not resignation. It's the humble acknowledgement that God is sovereign and he has your best in view. Rest. Here's the final part of the strategy. Step out in faith-filled confidence. Right? So, so we, we, we go into this, and let me just say, that I didn't say this at the beginning, but the time to wrestle with God's sovereignty is not when you are facing uh, an unforeseen tragedy or trial. The time to really wrestle with God's sovereignty is on the front end to know what you believe and in whom you believe, to be prepared for when that strikes. So we know the end at the beginning. We rest and find relief in God's loving, sovereign plan. And then finally, we step out in faith-filled confidence. You know, the disciples, they could have resi resigned themselves to defeat. I mean, the church is not getting off to a really good start. Yes, thousands of people are coming, but they're also being tamped and squashed down. The disciples could have said, you know, what, what good is all of this? What good is all of this if we're just going to keep being misunderstood? What, what good is all this if we're going to keep being marginalized and getting arrested? But that's not how they responded. They rested in God's sovereign control, and then they stepped out in faith-filled confidence. You know, one of the critiques of Reformed theology one of the critiques of us as Presbyterians uh, is, that, is that our understanding leads to apathy and complacency. Are you aware of this? That one of the critiques of Reformed theology is that leads to apathy and complacency, and, and critics say that we don't care about evangelism because God is going to save who God is going to save, or, or they say that we don't sympathize with sufferers because we believe that God is sovereign over pain. God is sovereign over salvation. He is sovereign over suffering. But that doesn't mean that we should be apathetic and complacent to our place. So notice again verse 31. After they lifted their voices in prayer, acknowledging, acknowledging God's sovereign control, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went out continuing to speak the word of God with boldness. Friends, God's sovereignty doesn't make us complacent, it makes us confident. It doesn't make us bitter, it makes us bold. If I didn't believe that God works through what I do, then I'd be complacent. If I didn't believe that God is in control when bad things happen, then I'd be bitter. Our strategy is to rest in God's sovereign control and then step out in confidence. Those aren't in conflict. Those things are not mutually exclusive, that we can rest in God's sovereign control, not trying to, to manage God, not trying to tame him, and at the same time step out in faithful confidence, knowing that because he is in control, he'll uphold our efforts. We don't let go and let God. We trust God and get going. And so right now, let's just end with this. If you're going through a situation or a season that feels too great to bear, 
if you're facing a trial or a tribulation or something that is beyond your control. Or, 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 if you, or if you are maybe in the midst of a situation like I have been over the last three weeks that, that is mind-blowing and life-changing. Not always a bad thing, many times a good thing, but something that you're not in control of. I'm not in control of this. It's not a bad thing at all, but it's something beyond my control. If you're currently facing something like that, or even if you aren't, but know that you could at any moment, which you can, I want you to know right now in whom you believe and what you believe. Know in whom you believe that God is good and God is great. Our kids say this at the, ta- at the table in prayer. God, I mean, there is, this is the greatest confession our children can make. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Now, why do they say that? Because ultimately we know that he's provided it for us because he is good and because he is great. That simple confession, know in whom you believe that he is great and he is good. Know what you believe, that he has your best as a child of God in mind. Know that God loves you and that he is lovingly working all things together for your good. You know, we all feel it. We all feel it. We, we, feel, we feel the tension. We, we want relief, and it's not just kid stuff. And so what do we do? We trust God. We stop trying to get away from his sovereignty and instead embrace, embrace our God and rest in him. Let's pray towards that end. Father, we thank you that you are great and good and that even now as we come to you in prayer, um, help us to know that when we come before you in prayer, what we're doing is an acknowledgement that we're not in control, but you are. That we're seekers and you're the provider. That you, you are the one who can meet our needs. You're the one who can heal and bring salvation. You're the one who can help. You are the one who sent your only begotten son like us that we might become like him. You are the one who planned and predestined through the hands of lawless men to give us salvation in Christ. And if you were in control over the most horrific event in history, then nothing we face is outside of your control. Let us have that confidence. Confidence in your plan, confidence in your purpose, confidence in the person and work of of Jesus for us. And then when we go out from this place, whether it's, um, it's a trial or a tragedy, maybe it's a cancer diagnosis. Some of our folks are dealing with, with cancer even now and recovering from it and go undergoing treatment for it, or, or whether it's something that'll happen unexpectedly over the next weeks and months. Whether it's opposition in the workplace or the loss of a job. As, as Kimbo and... Um, and, and Cademan went to a funeral for a, for a classmate of his this, this week or the loss of a child. Or maybe it's something great. It's, it's great good news. It's, it's life-changing blessing, but, but it's not in our control and we can't manage it and we so desperately want to manage it. God, would you bring us back to this, this good word reminder that you've given us a strategy um, to rest, to find relief, to step out and act in faith. To just put one foot in front of the other, believing in you. Do that within us. Do that for us. For Christ's sake. Amen.